0: Hello and welcome back to another raucous episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Millard Fillmore. But who cares? Come on everybody, let's go rock and roll! Today's episode takes place on August 14th, 1962. Just a few days earlier, Marilyn Monroe had been found dead in her home from an overdose of sleeping pills and chlorohydrate. Although ruled a probable suicide, her exact cause of death is still disputed to this day. On the same day, Nelson Mandela was arrested in South Africa and charged with incitement of starting a rebellion. Also at this time, Jamaica had just become independent after 300 years of British rule, as the Los Angeles Dodgers were protesting the San Francisco Giants manager Alvin Dark as he orders Candlestick Park's ground crew to water down the base paths, turning them into mud in order to hinder Dodger's all-star shortstop Maury Wells from base-stealing attempts. And of course, Elvis Presley was about to have his movie Kid Galahad released while he was filming another movie titled It Happened at the World's Fair, which was filmed in both Hollywood and on location at the Seattle's World Fair. Our story today follows a fairly well-known man by the name of Sir Richard Starkey. Most of you probably already know where this is going, but for those who don't, Sir Starkey is better known as none other than the one and only Ringo Starr. Ringo of course is better known for being the drummer in a little band some of you may have heard of called The Beatles. He often gets a bad rap for being a bad drummer, but that cannot be more far from the truth. In my opinion, Ringo is actually one of the best drummers of all time. His incredible drumming was the final kickstart The Beatles needed to break through and become the biggest musical act of all time. But before we get there, and before I start defending Ringo and state my opinions on his fantastic playing, let's roll that clock on back like we always do and find out the origins of this cherry on top of the Beatles Sunday. This time we'll go back to 1940, and we'll find out who this Sir Richard Starkey, aka Ringo Starr, one of the most important drummers of all time, really is. So now it's summer, 1940. On Sunday, July 7th, Richard Ritchie Starkey was born in a working class neighborhood in Liverpool, a port town sitting right on the Mercy River known as Dingle. He was born to Richard Starkey and Elise Gleave, two bakers who enjoyed being surrounded by music. Before young Ritchie was born, his parents spent most of their free time hitting the local ballroom circuits. Uh, They would mostly frequent a place called Reese's, which was a cafeteria-style restaurant in which the crowds would dance into the early morning hours, drinking copious amounts of wine. His mother loved to play piano, sing, and dance, and his father was partial to swing music. Richie was said to be the spitting image of his mother and bore hardly any resemblance to his father. He was Elise's boy from head to toe. His parents' party lifestyle had now abruptly come to a halt, and his mother took her new duties head-on, nurturing and loving her son very much. Richard Sr., however, was not quite cut out for fatherhood. He was stubborn in his ways and refused to adjust his lifestyle. It's said that often after work, he would head straight to the pub rather than stop at home. He wasn't ready to make the adjustment and take on his newfound responsibility. This would strain the pair's relationship and before Richie was even four years old, they would be divorced with Richard Sr. to practically never be seen again. Ringo states that he has no real memories of his father, but always knew how to reach out to him if he wanted to which he never made an attempt at. His mother was resourceful and took care of the household on her own. She would take on extra work and even swap houses with a neighbor around the corner. The neighbor had more kids and needed a bigger place, while she and her boy needed a smaller place that would provide her with some rent relief. She would work often during the day and leave Richie with either his grandparents or with a neighboring family known as the McGuire's. This time with his grandparents and the Maguires filled the gap left by his father. He would often spend days with Maria Maguire, who acted as a surrogate sister. She was four years older than him, and the two would often sit at the piano together and sing songs or go walking about town. It's said that Ringo's upbringing was more Dickensian compared to the other Beatles. While the others grew up working and middle class, Richard Starkey's life was described to be more ordinary poor. He wasn't a barefoot, ragged child, but like all families who lived in Dingo, he was part of the ongoing struggle that it was to survive in the area. The neighbors would often help each other out, and they had a sense of community with each other. Dingle, considered like most inner-city ghettos, was a dangerous terrain. There was that little sense of community, but outside of that, the atmosphere was bleak and treacherous. It was the kind of place where you were safe on the street you lived on, but if you strayed a few feet outside of that, you would be putting yourself at risk of danger or a violent situation. Ringo is quoted as remembering Dingle to be the type of place where you kept your head down, your eyes open, and you didn't get in anybody's way. Walking around town with Marie, young Richie, like most Dingle boys, quickly developed intuitive street smarts. Street smarts aside, his mother Elise would frequently worry about him. She would go out of her way to make sure he was always safe and with the McGuire's or his grandparents. Having that small sense of community near her home gave her some relief, but unfortunately there was one thing she couldn't protect her son from, and that would be illness. A few days short of his 7th birthday, on July 3rd, 1947, young Richie started to complain to his mother about a stomach ache and stabbing pains in his side. At first she thought he was just having some indigestion and brushed it off, but as the night went on, his symptoms continued to get worse. As the pain grew stronger and his temperature started to rise, she called for an ambulance and had him rush to a nearby children's hospital. Turns out it was appendicitis, and after a simple procedure, the appendix was removed. However, the aftermath caused him to develop a condition called peritonitis, which is a deadly inflammation of the thin layer of tissue inside the abdomen. This would cause young Richie to fall into a coma, and the doctors told his mother to prepare for the worst. A few days later on his birthday, July 7th, his mother, accompanied by Miss McGuire, arrived at the hospital prepared to say their goodbyes. Miraculously, though, he began to open his eyes, which, much to everyone's relief, was the first sign of recovery. The doctor said he was lucky to survive, and he now required rehabilitation and would have to stay in the hospital. It was a lengthy recovery where he spent six months in a crowded hospital ward, and then another year and a half at home in bed after he suffered a relapse. By now, so much time has passed that it was impossible for Richie to integrate normally back into school. He was now in the fourth grade but couldn't read or write. He said math was like a foreign language to him. School became a terrifying burden and he felt ostracized when he was there. So each morning after packing up his books and saying goodbye to his mother, he would instead ditch school and often hang out in parks with other truants until it was time to return back home. This caused young Starkey to be viewed as an outcast in his neighborhood. So Marie McGuire began to tutor him, much to his mother's encouragement. He wasn't thrilled at having to learn all this school stuff, but he quickly began to make incredible progress. However, as misfortune would have it, there was a disastrous setback. Marie said it seemed like they were this close to bringing him up to proper school standard when he got sick again. This time it was tuberculosis, which wasn't much of a surprise to anyone. At the time, there was an epidemic going around, and it seemed like everyone in the poor streets of Dingle were either wheezing, hacking, or coughing. Young kids were probably the most susceptible to this. He ends up back in the hospital again, but this not being his first rodeo understood the hospital life and quickly began to make himself at home. Normally shy and awkward, Richie seemed to thrive in this new hospital setting. People described him as the mayor of the ward, and he would quickly make friends with all the other kids and nurses. The staff would organize play times and various other activities for the kids to do as an outlet to help them get through their time in recovery. One day, the staff begins to encourage the kids to start an activity that would ultimately change the course of Richard Starkey's life. As an attempt to help the kids with their motor activity and to prevent them from having angsty outbursts, the staff brought in various musical instrument-like toys and encouraged the kids to join in and play as the hospital band. The instruments were things that were easy for kids to play, like triangles and tambourines. Richie is said to have ended up with cotton bobbins, which sounds super British to me, and I'm assuming is kind of like sticks that you wrap yarn around or something. Anyway, he would beat on the cabinet next to his bed as the band's drummer. He immediately fell in love with the drums. At first, he just was kind of thumping on the cabinet, but he soon started to experiment with different movements in his wrist. He was intrigued, and it seemed that drumming just kind of came naturally to him. His playing quickly went from a flat, dull thump and progressed into more complex rhythms. In no time at all, he was completely consumed by the drums, and it was all he could talk about. Marie Maguire even managed to get him a copy of Alan Ainsworth's record, Bedtime for Drums, and he would listen to it on repeat. He would often brag as he listened to the record, one day I'm going to play drums just like that. Eventually, he would return home from the hospital, but was ultimately never really going to go back to school. Since now he had fallen even further behind, he found it was too daunting and still felt ostracized by the whole situation. Instead, he would tend to spend his time at home listening to records and tapping along to tin cans with a pair of sticks. It was during this time his mother began to date a man named Henry Graves. Richie immediately bonded with Henry, his new father figure, and he looked up to him as a role model. Henry would introduce him to various types of music, which was key in helping him develop his ear. He never had any formal training, but learned to syncopate complex rhythms and tempos early on, and it was an essential part of growing his roots of his musical foundation. As he grew older, Richie would join the workforce and work various jobs, whatever he could find. He lacked motivation and would bounce around between different menial jobs and unemployment. It's said that his situation taught him indifference rather than ambition. By mid-1956, Henry Graves managed to help him land an apprenticeship as a machinist for the Henry Hunt & Son Company, which was a Liverpool school equipment manufacturer. While working at the facility, Richie would meet a fellow apprentice named Roy Trafford, a musician who would often bring his guitar along with him to work. The two quickly became friends as soon as they discovered they both had an interest in music. They would often spend their breaks hanging out together and would talk about their shared love of jazz and blues. It would be during these breaks that Trafford would introduce Ritchie to skiffle music, which he took an immediate liking to. Upon discovering this new, exciting music, the pair would begin to practice together during their lunch breaks, with Trafford on guitar and Starkey tapping along on boxes and tin cans. Soon, another co-worker named Eddie Miles would join in on their jam sessions. Eddie would also play guitar, and the trio started up their own skiffle group, which they would call the Eddie Miles Band, later renaming themselves Eddie Clayton and the Clayton Squares, taking the name from a downtown Liverpool landmark. They would play popular skiffle standards such as Rock Island Line and Walking Cane. While they weren't great, Richard Starkey couldn't be happier. He finally was tapping along in a real-life band. On Christmas Day 1957, Henry Graves gave Richie a gift that would change his life, a second-hand drum set. It was worn and full of dings and scratches, complete with a trash can lid for a cymbal, but it worked and it would set the Clayton squares apart from the hundreds of other local amateur groups in the area, allowing the boys to begin getting gigs and actual stage time in the clubs around town. They began to gig regularly, but at this time Skiffle was kind of on its way out and American Rock and Roll was now starting to take over the scene. Richie would continue to play with Eddie Clayton, but at this time he also began mood lighting with other bands on the side. Since he was one of the only kids in town with a drum set, many of the local bands around town had their eye on him. By March of 1958, one of the better known local groups from Liverpool was a group originally called Dracula and the Werewolves, who would eventually change their name to Al Caldwell's Texans. The group was fronted by a kid named Alan Caldwell, who was a good-looking singer and was known around town for his athletic prowess. Alan and his bandages opened up an illegal skiffle club in a basement of a large Victorian house. It was called the Morgue Skiffle Cellar, which they painted entirely black on the inside. The club was illuminated by a single light bulb and had one strip of ultraviolet light that would make the skeletons that they painted on the walls glow. It would become a popular hangout for local teens. They would put on shows every Tuesday and Thursday night. Al Caldwell's Texans would headline each night with bands starting at 7.30. Many bands would play, like the Blue Jeans, who would go on to become known as the Swingin' Blue Jeans, and the Quarrymen, who of course would go on to change their name and become the Beatles. It was in this club that all the skiffle bands started to switch from skiffle and become more influenced by rock and roll music, which in turn caused the crowds to continue to grow, growing to about 100 heads a night. These large crowds, of course, would attract attention of the local police and inevitably have the club shut down. This would lead Alan to take his band and head out on the road and search for club gigs and a record deal. During this time, Richie was at home and also becoming more and more enthralled with this new American rock and roll music that was sweeping through the UK. He would spend all his time sitting by the radio listening to Radio Luxembourg broadcasts and tuning in to hear them air Alan Moondog Freed's nightly shows over the airwaves. Any and every song that would come on would have Richie drumming along at home. He would even drum along during the commercial breaks. It's during this time that he learns intricate drumming patterns like shuffle beats, which would set him apart from the other local drummers who could just merely keep time. Starkey was learning how to accentuate other instruments while playing driving beats, and he really started to master the drums. He would eventually ask his grandfather for a 46-pound loan, to buy himself an Ajax drum kit, and it was at this time he decides to leave the Eddie Clayton group and begins playing with a group called Dark Town Skiffle, who had a gig set up at a local talent show called 6.5 Special, or 6.5 Special, but it says 6.5, I don't know. We're going with 6.5. Upon arriving at the 6.5 Special Talent Showcase, Richie happens to meet Alan Caldwell, who is now calling his band the Raving Texans. Alan was impressed with Starkey's new kit and flashy drumming ability, and the two began discussing rock and roll music. Al Caldwell tells Richie that he's looking for a new drummer to help him and his band get going in that new direction and leave skiffle music behind. Ritchie, wanting to follow a similar path, expresses his interest and then joins their band just in time for a gig they had booked on March 25, 1959 at the Mardi Gras Club in Mount Pleasant, Liverpool. After this, the group goes through a few name changes, and by October, we're going by the name Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, with Al donning the stage name Rory Storm, and Richie now taking on the stage name we all know and love, Ringo Starr. The name came from the rings that he would wear on his fingers, and from their infatuation with American Westerns, adding that O on the end. Starr, I'm sure, kind of played in with Starkey. Uh, and it's suspected that it was possibly influenced by the notorious American outlaw Bell Star, hence Ringo Star. Rory Storm in the Hurricanes then started to find success. On October 11th, 1959, the group entered a contest called the Search for Stars, which took place at the Liverpool Empire Theater. They were placed second out of 150 bands, and this would solidify Ringo as their permanent drummer. Back home in Dingle, Ringo was known to be kind of a distant introvert but now with his newfound success, he had discovered his inner self-confidence and he broke out of his shell and he found his hidden charm. It's said that he developed a bubble of personality and that all this new attention and exposure acted as a spark plug that stimulated an ego and identity that until that point had gone uncultivated. By January 1960, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes managed to land a few gigs at the Liverpool's famous Cavern Club. At this point in time, the venue was a jazz club and the Hurricanes got opening support slots for acts like Cy Laurie's Jazz Band and Terry Lightfoot's New Orleans Jazz Band. They were still kind of considered to be a skiffle group at this point in time and hadn't completely made the jump into a full-fledged rock and roll band. Since the Cavern Club was considered to be a jazz club, the audience and management were not too fond of rock and roll. However, on January 17, 1960, in a supporting slot opening for Mickey Ashman's Jazz Band, the Hurricanes started off their set with the skiffle standard known as Cumberland Gap. They would then tear into their rendition of the song Whole of Shaking Goin' On by Jerry Lee Lewis. This upset the crowd and management, and the jazz audience began booing and pelting them with coins and various objects. Although the jazz scene didn't approve of the music, the Hurricanes knew they were now on the right path. By May 1960, the Hurricanes were building up their reputation as one of Liverpool's top rock and roll acts, and they managed to land a spot opening up for Gene Vincent in the Liverpool Stadium. By July, the group secured a residency at the large seaside resort called Butlands. The band were paid £25 each a day, which in today's money is about £600. Things were looking up for the guys, and the band saw this as the beginning of a budding music career. They now had to decide, would they go on and full-time and carry on as musicians, or would they stay home and continue with their local menial jobs? Well, the rest of the bands knew their answer, but Ringo was strongly against it. At this point, he was four years into his five-year apprenticeship at the Henry Hunt and Son Company, and he wasn't ready to throw that all away. That is, until Rory Storm pitches him the idea of Star Time. Star Time would be a spotlight that would highlight Ringo, giving him drum solos in a section of the set where he could sing a few songs, such as Boys by the Shirelles and Alley Oop, a Kim Fowley-produced song originally performed by the Hollywood Argyles. Ringo still being unsure about the whole deal is then convinced by Al Caldwell that Star Time would get him all the girls, and hilariously enough, that's all it took for Ringo to change his mind. Rory Storm and the Hurricanes were now a full-time, semi-professional rock and roll band. During their residency at Butlins, the band would play at least 16 hours a week. It was at this time they were noticed and contacted by a man named Alan Williams. Williams was a, a booking agent businessman type who was trying his hand at being a show promoter and band manager. He had a venue in town called the Jack Aranda, known locally as the Jack. The Jack was frequented by many local bands, including a little band that was also attempting to make the jump from skiffle to rock and roll, and was now going by the name The Beatles. Alan Williams had recently had success sending a band called Derry and the Seniors up to Hamburg, Germany to play the residency at a venue called the Kaiser Keller. Seeing an opportunity for growth with the Hurricanes, he offers them a supporting slot to join the seniors on their residency bill. But content with their gig at Butlins, they declined the offer. Williams would then go on to ask a band called Jerry and the Pacemakers if they wanted the gig, but they would turn it down too. So then William gets the idea to send up that little small-time local act that would be hanging around his venue all the time. The one now calling themselves the Beatles. Looking for anything and anything they could get, the Beatles quickly jumped on the opportunity and accepted the gig. But there was one little problem. They didn't have a drummer. They were going to need one if they were going to be a rock and roll band with a full-time residency. Allen then sets the boys up with a hired gun drummer by the name of Pete Bess and sends the band on their way. The Hurricanes would remain at Butlins, honing in on their craft and tightening up their playing. Ringo specifically was becoming more and more professional by the day. By October... Alan returns to Liverpool to ask the Hurricanes if they were willing to reconsider and if they wanted to replace Derry and the Seniors on the residency up in Hamburg. The band tells Alan that if they get paid more than what the Seniors and the Beatles were getting paid, then they would consider doing it. After a little haggling, Alan agrees, and Rory Storm and the Hurricanes head up to Hamburg and were now billed on the top spot over the Beatles at the Kaiser Keller. Upon arriving in Hamburg, the Hurricanes and the Beatles would play for 12 hours every day. They would alternate between sets— 90 minutes on, 90 minutes off. As you can imagine, playing that frequently, both bands started to get really good at their instruments. When Alan Williams arrived to Hamburg, he noticed much to his surprise that the Beatles went from being these young kids having a rough-around-the-edges skiffle band to now playing and performing on stage like brilliant rock and roll entertainers. William quickly then arranges a private recording session at a place called the Acoustic Recording Studio to capture the band's current essence. The acoustic studio was located in a small room near Hamburg Central Train Station and was basically a record-your-own-voice booth-type setup. Alan then selects Lou Walters, the bass player of the Hurricanes, to sing lead vocals on the recordings, with John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr as the backing band for the tracks. He selected Ringo over Pete Best because Ringo was familiar with the songs he wanted them to record. The songs Alan chose were Fever, September Song, and Summertime. And this would be the first time John, Paul, George, and Ringo would ever play together. Only three acetates of the, se- of the session were made, and unfortunately the recordings are lost to this day. Hopefully by some miracle they will resurface one day. And a quick side note, there's a lot of conflicting information about this session, as everyone involved remembers it kind of differently. There's a website I found called Beatlesource.com that has more detailed info on this. And I'll have it posted up on the website if you want to look into it for yourself. But for the next few years, the Hurricanes and the Beatles would bounce between Liverpool and Hamburg, playing different residencies, while the two groups' popularity and musicianship would continue to grow. By now, the Cavern Club and the general audiences were more open to the idea of rock and roll, as this new wave of American rock and roll was spreading throughout the world. On February 5th, 1962, the Beatles had a lunchtime gig set up at the Cavern Club and a nighttime performance at Kingsway Club in Southport. As it so happened, their drummer Pete Bess was sick and could not play the shows. Being the consummate professionals now that they were, and not wanting to cancel on the gig, the Beatles go and ask Ringo if he would like to fill in and play the drums for them. Fortunately, the Hurricanes had no shows booked for that date and Ringo agrees. This would be the first time ever Ringo performs live with the Beatles. A few months later the Beatles would go on to be discovered by Brian Epstein, who would take on managerial duties for the band. He eventually lands them a one-year record deal with Polydor Records, and wanting to take the band to the next level, John and Paul decide they need to get a better drummer. On August 14, 1962, Ringo's approached by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, who tell Ringo that they loved playing with him and they wanted him to join their group, and they were giving Pete Best the boot. Ringo tells the guys that unfortunately he just a few days earlier had accepted an offer to fill in for a few residency dates with the King Size Taylor Band, Uh, for 20 pounds a week. Upon hearing this and without batting an eye, John offers him 25 pounds a week. Ringo immediately takes the offer, skips out on King Size Taylor, joins the Beatles, and the rest is history. Now there's a lot of rumors and controversy over why the Beatles would want to replace Pete Best with Ringo Starr. Some people speculate that John and Paul were jealous because he was good looking and Pete was getting all the attention of the girls. But to me, it's clear as day that Ringo was just the far superior player. Here's a clip of Paul and Howard Stern uh, explaining for the first time they played with Ringo that fateful day in 1962 when Pete Best was sick. Was he thrown out of the band because he was so good looking? No. It was his drum. You know what? The truth was, uh, we just kind of fell in love with Ringo's drumming. Right. Ringo was in another band, and we had Pete, and we were working, and we used to go see this other band. We said, God, that drum is good. Right. And one night, uh, Pete couldn't do it, and Ringo sat in for him and we all just went, oh. oh, it was like, oh, my God, what is what happening? There was something funny going on. Yeah. Behind us was this powerhouse and this person who was like taking care of the job. And we went, oh, dear. Is the lesson it's learned weirdo. from that? Never, never be, miss work. Never miss work. Just show up and don't <laughs> give anyone that opportunity. That's probably Even if yes. you're very ill. Right. It's obvious that the band enjoyed playing with Ringo. To solidify this, here's a clip of John Lennon discussing the matter. By then, we were pretty sick of Pete Best, too, because he was a lousy drummer, you know. He never improved, you know. And uh, there was always this, this this myth being built up over the years that he was great and Paul was jealous of him because he was pretty and all that crap, you know. And the reason he got in the group in the first place was because the only way we could get to Hamburg, we had to have a drummer. And we just heard that this guy was, we we knew of this guy who was living at his mother's house who had a club in it, and he had a drum kit, and we just grabbed him, auditioned him, and he could keep one beat going for long enough, so we took him to Germany. And we were always going to dump him when we could find a decent drummer, you know. But by the time we'd got brought back from Germany, we'd trained him to keep, you know, a stick going up and down a four in the bar. He couldn't do much else, you know. And he looked nice, and the girls liked him, so, you know, that was all right. So yeah, to me, it's all about the playing. To further prove my argument, let's listen to a few clips and compare the two drummers playing back-to-back. Here's a clip of Pete Best playing the song, Money. Now here's a clip of Ringo playing the same song. Okay, and here's a clip of Pete Best playing I saw her standing there. Well she was just seventeen. You know what I mean, and the way she looks way beyond the bell. And now here's Ringo. People can say what they want to say and believe what they want to believe, but to me it's easy to see that Ringo was just the far better player. I think they made the right choice, not only his playing but his presence and character. He wasn't just a good looking guy who could tap along at the beat, he was more than that. They say Pete Best was in the Beatles, but Ringo was a Beatle. Ringo fit in with the band so much better and added to their camaraderie, charisma and quick-witted style that the world would fall in love with. Ultimately, it was Ringo who would take the band to the next level. His playing was ahead of its time, and although simple, it was full of energy and complemented the guitars well. It was an integral part of the Beatles' sound and style, and it's what would drive them up into the charts, causing Beatlemania and all that. Without Ringo, the Beatles would not have been the Beatles. It would have probably just had fizzled out into obscurity after recording a single or two. I've always said Ringo's one of those players who has drum parts where if you just listen to the drums, you can identify the song. And although I'm not much of a Journey fan, their drummer Steve Smith has a great quote. He says, Before Ringo, drum stars were measured by their soloing ability and virtuosity. Ringo's popularity brought forth a new paradigm in how the public saw drummers. We started to see the drummer as an equal participant in the compositional aspect. One of Ringo's greatest qualities was that he composed unique stylistic drum parts for the Beatles songs. His parts were so signature to the songs that you can listen to a Ringo drum part without the rest of the music and still identify the song. And I mean, I have to agree with this. Check out this clip of me playing the intro of a Beatles song on drums. As bad as my playing is, I bet you can still guess what song it is. Yup, you guessed it, it's She Loves You. And I think it's amazing how I'm not even really a drummer, and it's still recognizable. There's a quote I found in the comment section from Songfats.com that needs a citation, but it says, Star is also considered to have advanced various modern drumming techniques for playing and recording, such as matched grip, which is a way of holding the sticks, placing the drums on high risers for visibility part of the band tuning the drums lower, using muffling devices on tonal rings, along with the general contributions to the Beatles as a whole. He really changed the way people approached the drums. I mean, how many drummers can you even name that come before Ringo Starr? Like Buddy Rich? Well, Buddy Rich is great and all. He certainly isn't rock and roll. Ringo's drumming is extremely important. Think about how many bands the Beatles influenced. I mean, you wouldn't even have the Rolling Stones without the Beatles. I don't think you need me to point out just how important the Beatles are but I wanted to spend this episode highlighting a drummer who single-handedly changed the way drums and rock and roll music would be played forever. Sir Richard Starkey, the cherry on top of the Beatles' Sunday, one of the greatest and most important drummers of all time, the one and only Ringo Starr. So that concludes another episode of Rock and Roll History. Sorry for the delay on getting this one out, folks. You know, being all quarantined, you tend to forget what day it is. I appreciate your patience, and I appreciate you listening. So remember to stay sane, stay healthy, and to rock and roll!